Let me hear you one more time if all your hope is in Jesus. Oh, that was weak. That was weak. I'm not going to make you do it again, but next time you have an opportunity, take full advantage of it. Well, hey, it's good to be here this morning, and we're continuing on with our series called Tell Me a Story on the Parables of Jesus. Before we get into that, let me just have you answer something with somebody right next to you. Where are you from? All right, so where are you a native of? Where are you from? And just share one thing that is synonymous with that place, right? One thing that's characteristic of that place. So go ahead and just take a moment to do that. For some reason, all morning, the song that's been in my head is, where I come from is cornbread and chicken. But that's not really where I come from. I did spend some time in the South, and uh, but I'm originally a Cincinnati native. Anybody else a Cincinnati native, like Cincinnati area native? All right, we got a lot of Cincinnati natives. What about like somewhere along the East Coast? Uh, you consider like that region. All right, we got some East Coast. Uh, what about Midwest, aside from Cincinnati, like somewhere in the Midwest? All right, west from there, somewhere out in between Midwest and West Coast. Anybody? Uh, West Coast people. Where is that? We got, okay, we got a few West Coast people. What about somewhere down south, Texas, Florida? Yeah, along that southern border. What about from another country? Anybody? Uh, all right, or from another planet? Anybody from another? Yeah, I just want to ask. All right, just, okay. I, uh, we have uh, JB's from Thailand, so after I went through it all, he's just kind of sitting there. I was like, anybody from Thailand? He's like, yep, right here. So, um, all right, so Cincinnati natives, there's some things that we understand, uh, have this common experience, this shared experience. And my wife is originally from Lexington, Kentucky, so there were some things I had to expose her to and explain to her that wouldn't have made sense to her otherwise because she's not from Cincinnati. And so if you're not originally from Cincinnati, I'll give you a few of those, although if you spent any time at all here, you'll understand that this is part of our shared experience experience as Cincinnati natives, all right? So the first is, I just think we have the best food. Like, I, I, that could be my humble opinion, but we have really good food. If you're not from Cincinnati, you probably think that looks gross. But the truth is, we have figured out through experimentation that cinnamon and chocolate belongs in chili. Like that, it just goes there, and it's delicious. And, and if you notice in the background, it's subtle, but there's only one chili in Cincinnati, all right? And I, don't even, I won't even talk. Some of you might argue with me on that. But I won't even talk about the other place because that's not true Cincinnati chili. But we're all Skyline all day long. My little guy, he loves. This is his favorite place to go. He say, Dad, can we go to Skyline? Skyline? Like all the time. Let's go to Skyline. And he just tears into it. I'm like, that's my boy. I'm very proud. He is a Cincinnati native as well. Um, if we talk about ice cream in Cincinnati, there's really only one kind of ice cream in my book as well, and that's Grater's. And black raspberry chip is delicious. They do have a flavor right now called s'mores that's very good too. Uh, but black raspberry chip, and if you notice at the very top, there's like this glacier-sized piece of chocolate. Like if you're not careful, if you don't know what you're getting into, I'm, I'm, I'm helping to create some awareness for you right now. You could lose a tooth if you're not careful because the chocolate inside of there is so uh, big. If you're in, a, if you have a, if you're in a couple or you have a, uh, a husband or wife, and they say, "Do you want to share an ice cream?" You should just go ahead and answer no, because what's going to end up happening is you're going to be fighting for that big piece of chocolate in the middle the entire time. And so that's that's how it goes with with Jess and I. Um, we are passionate about our sports teams in Cincinnati, even though they continually seem to let us down. Right? Like it's oh, every year. So this is the Bengals fan at the beginning of the year. We're like, "Woo! Yeah, go Bengals!" And then here we are at the end of the year, like. 
It's just reality. I'm sorry. I, I hope it changes at some point. But we're conditioned for disappointment when it comes to Cincinnati sports. This, we every, but every year we have a renewed sense of hope. This is going to be the year, right? This is going to be the year. I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to keep that mentality. I had another one that, uh, well, how about this? So this is like just something we're accustomed to seeing in Cincinnati. Uh, my entire life, I've just, like, this is just like the scenery of Cincinnati, right? Like this is what we have. Other people have trees. We have orange uh, cones to look at all the time. And it feels like there has been a perpetual uh, construction project in, on I-75 my entire existence. Like, it just doesn't. And there's always barrels out there. It's like, is this just for decoration? Because I'm not sure that anything's really progressing toward anything. I'm like, it looks like the same 75 um, with lots of potholes. And, um, you know, and then there's all those, like, little lanes that I hate to get trapped into. Like, we have those, too, where you're like, all of a sudden you're in this, like, little, like, offshoot lane i'm like where is this taking me like i i have no idea and uh this is just road construction is just part of our existence in cincinnati um one more i had thought about that i don't have a picture of but one of the reasons i love cincinnati is that we have all of the seasons and uh, i love the seasons i love the changing of seasons i just don't like it as much when we have all of them like in the same week right and we're that happens from time to time. We're like, wow, and we're already experiencing fall temperatures, but it will get very, very hot again. It might even snow at some point. We, we don't know. We're always, it's, we're always in for a surprise when it comes to uh, the weather. But I truthfully am just proud to be a Natty native, a Cincinnati native, and uh, there's, there's no place like home. Uh, and all of us, we come from a variety of places. We've grown up in a variety of towns. Uh, but what I want to say to you this morning is, what if those places weren't actually your true home? What if that wasn't really where you were a native of? What if I told you that you were citizens, natives of another place? Maybe you know where I'm going with this, but in Philippians 3, 18 through 21, Paul tells the Philippians that you're actually citizens of another place, that you're citizens of heaven. It says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in, in their, they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In that phrase is so much of our common story our shared story for those of us that have decided to let Jesus rule over our lives and really assign him as king of our lives, we are citizens of heaven. And what I want to do for just a little bit this morning is dive into a story where Jesus helps us make sense of that somewhat strange reality at times, right, that we exist in as natives of heaven. And so if you would, go ahead and turn with me. We're going to look at Matthew 13 and pick up where Stephen left off last week and talk a little bit about what Jesus often talks about. One of his favorite subject matters as he tells stories is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, where our citizenship is, and, and that is heaven. And what he's doing as he talks about these things is he's drawing us back into this shared story that we have, our collective experience as natives of heaven. And Jesus does this through parables. I mean, there's nothing like a story, right, to grip our heart, to stir our imagination and really instill truth in our lives. And Jesus did this better than anyone else. He was the best storyteller there ever was. And so he uses this craft of story to shape our thinking about what it looks like uh, to, to, to be fellow human beings and uh, to be citizens of heaven. And so uh, let's lean in here into Matthew 13. We're going to start in verse uh, 4, and I'm going to read that parable to you. 
Actually, it's verse 24. Uh, we're going to go Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. He says this, it put, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to the man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the, uh, of the master came to the house and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the wheat, the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat into my barn. And then they just, much like maybe some of you look from time to time on a Sunday morning, they're just like, what does that even mean? Like I, I, and so that's how they were looking at him, and often with parables. But what it did is it started to stir their thinking about something. So then he'll go on later often to explain what he just talked about. And so he does that starting in verse 36. It says, Then when, the, the, when he left the crowds and went into the house, the disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds. So it's just him and the disciples now, right? It's just him and his inner circle having a conversation about this wisdom that he just shared in the form of story. And so, uh, and then he responds in this way. He says, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the, are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of, of his kingdom all that causes sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He, and then he says, and this is how he often ends his messages or his stories, he who has ears, let him hear. I feel like that's a phrase I need to use at my house a lot, a little bit more, you know. He who has ears, let him hear. You know, how many times have I got to say this? Just he who has ears, let him hear. And so what Jesus does for us in this story, I'm going to go ahead and lay out the framework for you, and I'm going to share some of the implications of what Jesus is sharing. So Jesus shows us that we have this shared story. And as part of that shared story, we have a shared origin, we have a shared enemy, and we have a shared destiny. So if you'll allow me here for just a little bit, I'm going to speak about our shared origin, our shared enemy, and our shared destiny. First of all, we see in the parable this shared origin that we have. It says in Matthew 13, 24, again, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to the man who sowed good seed in his field. A man who sowed good seed in his field. And he compares God as a sower, one who has planted these seeds, right? Intentionally planted these seeds out of his own perfection. And so when we think about really where we came from, our origin, we were born from the hand of perfection. And when you think about that, that has all kinds of implications, doesn't it? That originally, this is where we came from. We came from the perfect God. We were born intentionally from the hand of God, his creating us. And if you believe in a creator, you believe in one who has intention like this sower, it really changes our thinking on everything. So we are sown from the hand of perfection, but what a lot of us have realized, hopefully at this point in our lives, is that we know that we were born from the hand of perfection, but we were born into imperfection. Though God is perfect, we were born into this field and into this world that became marred by imperfection and rebellion and rejection of God, and we see that. So though 
we have the right and offer an invitation to be sons and daughters of heaven. We were born to earth. We were made from God. We were made for God. And the Bible tells us in the creation story that he saw all that he created and it was good. But free will led to rebellion, which led to the fallen state and the broken world that we have to navigate today, that we experience today. And I think that's why sometimes this feels like a foreign place to us, doesn't it? I mean, as we read news stories and as we experience things, and we're like, there's just something wrong about this picture, right? And there's so many things that we could just pinpoint to say, this just feels out of place, or I just feel out of place. Like, this can't be all that there is. And we raise these questions. And sometimes we're not even comfortable in our own skin, right? Like, I just, I don't feel at home here in this place, right? And the Bible gives, makes some sense of this. Jesus makes some sense of this in this story as we understand that. Well, that's because we were not born from this world. We were born out of this world. We were planted into this world by the hand of a perfect God born into imperfection. Romans 8, through 24, Paul tells the Romans this. He says, we know that the whole creation, all of us, right, all of us as individuals, but all of creation has been impacted, as he's going to say here, by fallenness and by imperfection. We know that the whole creation then has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. He's given a very real analogy here, one that I've not experienced, and I won't, ladies, I won't claim to know anything about, but it's painful, right? And it's painful at times to exist in a fallen world, and this is the illustration that he's using. And then he says, not only, we are, not, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, so those who are citizens of heaven, natives of heaven, we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so he gives us this, he helps us make sense of this groaning that exists. And I know that you've experienced this in one way or another. You just feel like, man, there's got to be more. There's this longing for something more. There's this longing that exists in us for something else that's calling us back home, right? That's calling us back to the place that we were born out of. C.S. Lewis captures it this way when he writes, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I'm telling you, you were made from another world. You were made for another world. And so if you feel sometimes strange and like a foreigner in this place, that is why. But we were. We were made for a different kind of a world. We were born uh, from a world of harmony, peace, and true satisfaction for harmony, peace, and true satisfaction. We were born for a world and from a world where every need was met. Our well never ran dry where we lived in perfect union with God and one another. It was the picture of what we see in Eden in Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3. Prior to the fall in Genesis 1, the way God created it and said that it was good. And in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, he forecasts this is what it's going to be like again. This is coming full circle because eventually all will be made right once more. And it says uh, this in 11, 6 through 9. The wolf will live with the lamb. Interesting imagery here, by the way, but just try to wrap your head around this. This is how he describes the kingdom of heaven. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. How many of you know you're not typically putting those two things in a zoo exhibit together? Like, it's just not a really, really good idea. It's not a recipe for success down at the Cincinnati Zoo. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. Just put them all together. And then a little child will be leading them along. How many of you are going to, like, sign your kids up for that? Like, just go ahead and lead the leopard and all these, you know, things that don't get along with each other together. And the cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. Okay. The infant will play near the cobra's den. 
not letting my newborn infant play near a cobra's den. I'm just not. The young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. Like, okay. They will neither harm nor destroy, though, on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge the Lord, uh, uh, the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this knowledge, they will know God in such a way that none of this stuff will any longer exist. There won't be animosity uh, in creation in the same way that there's animosity in creation now. In fact, all of these things will coexist together and live together in perfect harmony. And that's a strange, that's just not what we see, right? That's not, that's not reality for us. Not yet. But that is the, the world that we were made for. You see, God established all that was good, but what we understand in our shared story is there was sabotage. And Jesus talks about it right here as, as he continues on in the parable of the weeds, that we have a shared enemy. We have a shared enemy. Not only do we have a shared origin, we have a shared enemy. And it says, well, while everyone is sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And I think we have to come to this understanding that there is a very real enemy at work here. There is a very real enemy at work in our lives, and there is a very real enemy that wants to derail your family. There's a very real enemy that wants to destroy the things that God has intended for good in your life and we have to navigate life in such a way that we have an awareness of that because I don't know if you notice but isn't it interesting that when does the Bible say that this enemy comes in and sows these seeds under darkness under the cover of darkness while everyone was sleeping he came and sowed the seeds and that's how it often happens if he can just operate undetected in the most subtle way without us noticing what's happening. And that's what the enemy does. That's when they say that sin grows in the darkness, right? If you want to give just the perfect breeding ground for sin in your life and destruction in your life, just isolate yourself. Just isolate yourself. Don't talk about things and just let things build up in your life or operate without people knowing. And that's what, that's what the enemy, uh, that's where he operates best. You see, the servants, they didn't even realize what happened until the damage had been done. They're looking around thinking, like, what happened here? How did this happen? Because the enemy operated undetected. Maybe you've heard that old saying, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Right? I'm not. He's, if I could just work under the cover of darkness, nobody, you, just, you blame whatever you want for it. But the devil is at work in a lot of ways. We're most susceptible under the cover of darkness, and that's what he does. He just sows a little bit of seed of doubt here. He sows a little fear here. He sows a little lie here, a little temptation here. Some of us think about it in kind of, you know, from whatever we learned, our past theology or whatever, that there's, you know, we, we have different views on what maybe spiritual warfare looks like. But at least what we see in the scripture here is this very simple yet subtle strategy. The enemy's not often showing up in a force of power, but he's doing it in the most subtle ways, changing, rooting some uh, desire in us, or dropping some de deception into our life. Jesus tells us in John 8, 
Uh, he characterizes the devil. He actually calls out the Pharisees in the process of characterizing the devil, saying to them, you belong to your father, the devil. That's, if you want to ultimately criticize somebody, like that would be the line, like you, you belong to the devil. You know, that's what he says. You belong to your father, the devil. Okay, you've got my attention now, right? And he says, you want to carry out your father's desires. And then he goes on to, to talk about the desires of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. That's what, I mean, destruction is what he wants ultimately in your life. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And so you want to know his strategy? It's right there. Lies. Lies that sound so good that they just might as well be true, too. Like with Eve, it was just like they raised a question for her. Like, are you sure God said that? And there's just a little bit of doubt now. Like, well, maybe, did God say it? Is that what he meant? And now I'm starting to kind of wrestle around, and we see the result of that, right? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from that tree? And then little by little, that grows. He did the same thing to Jesus in the wilderness, casting seeds of doubt. But Jesus obviously was not exploited by it. But he would say things like, just dropping an idea here, like, hey, turn that bread to stone, right? Turn that bread to stone. Or, and, and Jesus just responds with scripture, right? He speaks truth back to him. He, he comes back at the lies with truth. Like, hey, no, this is actually truth. And so that's how he corrects it. Dallas Willard says that when Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick but with an idea. It was with an idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. What if the enemy's work in our life was really just that subtle that we would just say that it's not really him working, it's just this, that, or the other? The enemy is most dangerous under the cloud of darkness. He seeks to sabotage us, to sabotage our our families, to dismantle the good that God has established in us and wants for us. And so I believe that we're wise to do what Jesus tells his disciples to do. And in the moments when he knew they would be most vulnerable, which was prior to him going to the cross, he knew they would be most exposed in those moments. And so prior to that, what advice was he giving them over and over again that they weren't really following very well? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. That's how we combat the work of the enemy in our life. We watch and pray. And then he says this little tag to it. Because why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You might have all the willingness and determination in the world, but you have to understand that the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak, so we need to watch and pray. So this morning, I had just really cool God moment this morning, and uh, I'm getting ready. I'm kind of walking around the building, getting stuff together, and um, I, I see Caleb, and he's kind of like following me around. And I'm like, Caleb is uh, Stephen and Caroline's little seven-year-old uh, son, and he's like, He's like, Josh, Josh, and I'm kind of like in like task mode, like I just got to get a couple things done here, and I'm like, just come on, walk with me, walk with me, and so finally, like, I, he's just kind of like following me around, and then he just starts tapping me like this, like, like he's really got to tell me, I'm like, so then I'm like, oh, I better give him attention, like he's got something important to say, he's like, hold on, let me get my mom, and I'm like, uh-oh, like what's, what is that, I don't know what's going on, so he's like, he grabs his mom, and then they, we, we're back standing in the coffee house, and and um, I'm like, so you called the meeting, Caleb, so what are we talking about? You know, like, and so he starts to, uh, starts to talk, and his mom says, you know, we've been working with him on just paying attention when he feels like maybe God is showing him something or revealing something to him, and, and just kind of to operate in the tension of what is and isn't from God. And so, um, he, but he, he felt like he needed to share something with you today. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm so, like, now I'm just anticipating, like, what he has to share with me. And so 
he starts to talk, and she's like, go ahead, Caleb, like, share, share it, because he's kind of, like, being timid about it. And he says, this is, this is what I, I heard, so I decided to share this with you. This is so good. He said, he said, first of all, if you dream big dreams, you will do big things. If you dream big dreams, you will do big things. And then I'm like, oh, that's great. Like, I'm writing it down. Like, that is so good. Like, I'm, like, I'm right. And he, I'm not done. He's like, all right, yeah, okay, good. So I'm like writing the right. If you dream small things, you will do small things. I'm like, oh, man, this is good. Like, it's like a three-point message. Like, I'm, like, I'm ready to go. And he's like, um, and then he comes at me with the last. He's like, well, this last one's really important. If you dream dreams that you think you have to accomplish on your own, you will accomplish nothing. Whoa, that is good. And then he made sure to reference at the end, at all, at all. You will accomplish nothing at all. I'm like, man, that's good. So I, I should have had him preach today, but I'm like, that is such good stuff. And then he goes on and says, like, I got more. I'm like, what, you, how could you have more? Like, there's this, and so he, he goes on to tell me some more. He said, um, my mom's going to write a book. It's going to be her prayer journal. I was like, now he, she's got something to do. You know, like, okay. And he's like, and the, the title of the book is going to be seven years old. The title of the book is going to be The Anchor of Our Dreams. The Anchor of Our Dreams. And he said, you know, he's telling me, he's like, you know what the anchor is, don't you? I'm like, no, what's the anchor? He's like, just imagine, like, you're, you're setting sail on this boat, and you're, like, en route to, you're on a voyage to your dreams, and you're, you're out on this boat. So you know what the anchors are? The anchors are fear and anxiety and insecurity. I'm like, wow. Like, I'm just stunned. And he's like, and you got to get rid of those anchors in pursuit of what God has for you. And so I just felt like maybe somebody probably needed to hear that. So I, I wanted to just share that with you. But I, I have a question for you. What weeds has the enemy sown or is sowing that is holding you back from the big things that God has for you? Is it doubts? Is it fears? Is it some sort of anxiety? Because those who dream big dreams will do big things. But we got to cut those anchors. We can't allow those anchors to drag at us and pull at us. And I, I don't think that at all, although we want to be conscious of these things, I don't think Jesus tells us this so that we'll be afraid. I think he tells us this so that we'll be aware that there's an enemy at work. But, and I think we should be conscious of evil, but not overcome or consumed or obsessed by it, or especially not overwhelmed by it. Because, yes, we have a shared origin. Yes, we have a shared enemy. But we've got a shared destiny. We have a shared destiny. And we are destined for victory. I don't know how many of you guys are sports fans out there, and we're kind of into the season now of sports. And uh, like I said, I, I try to hang with the Bengals. But my true team is the Kentucky Wildcats. Now, if I'm watching a Wildcats game, because Kentucky is my team, how many of you know how relaxed I am? Not at all, right? Especially if it's a big game, especially if we're playing a team like Louisville or Duke. I'm just not relaxed the whole time. I'm tense. Like, my kids are, like, talking to me, like, just, just everybody relax, okay? It's going to be okay, especially in these big game kind of a moments. And the truth is, I never actually sit back and relax until I have some level of confidence that we're going to win. Then I could just kind of be, okay, now I'm relaxed, I'm enjoying, which is a lot of times why I don't invite people over to my house when I'm watching a game because I'm like, 
especially people that aren't on my squad or aren't part of, like, aren't Kentucky Wildcats because they'll just, pull, they'll just mess with me the whole time, you know, and I'm not down for that. But there is a great moment that comes along when you're like, okay, victory is imminent now. We're going to win this game, and you can sort of rest easy. You can enjoy the game. I just want to say, what, what if we had that same kind of insur- assurance in life, that victory would come? Uh, wouldn't that be the best? Wouldn't it be the best if we could just sit back and be like, no, th- there's victory on the other side of this. Like, this looks tough now, and we're in the heat of battle right now, but there's a victory that's coming. Like, if we lived with that kind of confidence, in fact, the definition of that is what we just sung about a little bit ago, hope, right? What if we lived with that sense of hope that we just believed in advance that victory was coming? Like, we, we knew victory was coming. And what I'm speaking to is we're going to have defeats, right? But ultimate victory is coming. And Jesus talks about that. When he says, when he, when he shares with us that the weeds are pulled up, and at the end of the day, that those who are the righteous, who have claimed Jesus as king, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then he says, whoever has ears, let him hear. He's saying, this is important. This truth is important. Because it allows us to operate with a level of confidence as we stand in victory, knowing that that is our shared destiny. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I know it's tough now, but the harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. Victory is ours. But I think it's difficult for us, and often we walk around through life, though we maybe have even grown up in the church or believe these things, and even as I'm saying these things, there's something inside of us that just wants to slouch our shoulders, right, and get into this sort of defeated posture. And all of us are guilty of it. All of us fall into these patterns. And some of you are going through some real stuff, so my my, my objective here is not to discount that. It's to elevate the truth of the victory. I know you guys are facing some real things here. But what if we didn't just succumb to this defensive, defeated posture? What if we remembered the thing that the enemy wants us to forget, which is that that's victory is ours. That we have this death. He doesn't want us to remember that because we can operate more freely. We can live more fully when we understand that victory is coming at the end of it all. That the harvest is coming. We have at our house a fly problem. and It's true. It's true. And this time of year, it's really bad. The truth is, we don't have a fly problem as much as we have a leaving the door open problem. I don't know if any of you guys have those same people at your house that just leave doors open all that but there's just like the flies it's like we're just like come on move in with us like just come on in and they're everywhere and like it's i start out just kind of being annoyed by it because they're flying around and um i'm laying like i'll be laying on the couch like or something and they'll just land on my head like like they're making fun of me like just land on my head i'm like I'm like, you know, like trying to like swat at him, like swinging like aimlessly. Like, it, I mean, in moments of just, you'd come into my house like, what's wrong with him? Like, I'm like swinging at these things like in midair. And like, it's just, but there's so many of them at times. I, I just can't even keep up. And then I'll be sitting down to dinner and they'll just be like, hey, 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 and they'll like land on my food. And I'm like, oh, you know, like I'm so upset. Like, why? I cannot, I cannot do anything about this. And finally, like, I. I'm just ready to give up. Like, let's just live among the flies. Like, I, you know, I like, we, we're going to leave the door open. I can't convince you little ones to shut the door. So there's just going to be flies in my house. And, it, like, I just kind of come to that. And just the other day was like, enough is enough. Like, we can, this is crazy. Like, we can't, we can't live this way. And so I, I had this resurgence inside of me. Like, all right, enough is enough, flies. Like, and so I got online and I ordered this. 
And if you don't know what that is, their time is short. Their time is And so I, I got this thing, and it's cool. It's like a salt gun, and um, you, it's great because I was like, it's coming in the mail in two days via Prime. And so I just I looked at the floor. I saw them all throughout the house. I said, just wait. Just wait. Your time is short. Your time is short. I'm letting them know. And I'm even saying this out loud. And Jess is like, you're crazy. You're weird. Um, but finally the thing comes in the mail, and on it it says, treat this as an actual firearm. i like, Okay, cool, so put it up on the shelf where uh, kids can't reach it because apparently this thing packs a punch. And so I thought I was curious. I was like, Jess, just shoot me in the leg with it. Like, I want to see, like, what that, like, feels like. So just shoot me in the leg with it. And, like, uh, like a big baby, like, she lines up, like, really close. Like, boom, I'm like, ah, you know, like, oh, you know, so maybe being a little bit dramatic. But it's a powerful little weapon. And so it was, it was that time came, and Wednesday was the day when the tide started turning at our house. And I just, like, here we go. And I'm like, I'm coming around. you got to wait for them to, like, land on, like, a surface because that's, and so I'm just, like, you come up to them, like, boom. And then they, like, sometimes they're, like, you know, and then you got to get them again, like, boom. And then they're, like, so down, okay. And I, I have to make no apologies about this. But let's just say that we no longer have a fly problem in my house. We don't. In fact, now I welcome it. I'm just going to, I'm lining them up outside, like, tell your friends, you know, because you <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so get one of these. I'm like $40 well spent. Like, I'm, I'm loving it. In fact, now I'm like encouraging the kids to leave the door open. I'm like, come on, bring them in. Like, let's go. It's hunting season, you know. But there's something very big. There's a big shift that takes place in our life when we go from this kind of a posture to now this renewed sense of, I'm not playing defense anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm not... I'm done playing defense, right? I'm going on offense, and I'm declaring victory over this, right? I I have a new sense of hope. And the message that we should really have for our enemy is this. Your time is short. Your time. You can be as pesky as you want to be right now with me, but listen, your time is short. And at the end of this, at the harvest of all of this, you will be uprooted. Because we see it right here, because the harvest is coming. Evil will be uprooted. Death will be defeated. Those battles that you're fighting right now, and I know some of you are fighting battles. I had the opportunity to pray with some people walking out of here uh, first hour. And there's some very real battles happening in the lives of people within our church. But i got to tell you something about those battles. They will be no more. There will be a day when you will no longer be fighting those battles. Instead, you'll be claiming victory. In fact, cancer will one day be uprooted. Loneliness will be uprooted. Violence will be uprooted. Depression, anxiety will be uprooted. Those who harm others will be uprooted. Those who oppose God and his kingdom will be uprooted. Those, the one who seeks to sabotage you will be uprooted. Why? Because the cross has the final word. And that word for those who are in Christ is this. It's victory. It's victory. And so what if we took on a new posture? What if instead we approached our days with anticipation and confidence, knowing that victory is coming, knowing how the story ends? There's a great story in the Old Testament, and it's a story about Moses and uh, the Amalekites and this battle that was going on between the people of God and the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were just pesky. They kept coming back, right? They kept coming back over and over again. And finally, Moses at one point had just had it, and he says to Joshua, he says, listen, go out into the field of battle. Just go out in the field. Today is the day. I'm going to go stand up on that mountain. I'm going to hold up hands in victory. Out in anticipation of what's going to happen, God's going to deliver us over, I'm standing up here, 
with hands of victory. I'm going to hold my hands up the entire battle, right? Hold your hands up just for a minute. It's not as easy as to keep them, hold them up. Go ahead. I know I'm making you work in church. I'm sorry. It's actually not as easy. I, I won't make you do it for too long, but it gets hard. And so eventually, and you can go ahead and put them down. Sometimes when we're holding up arms and we're declaring victory and trying to live victorious, our, our hands want to just fall down, right? And we want to fall back into this posture. And Moses, that's what happened. He kept throwing up hands in victory, but he couldn't hold them up. They were getting tired. And so when he was holding up that victory sign and holding up just this sign of, um, of just worship to God, uh, the, the battles were over, t- the, uh, the Israelites were overtaking the Amalekites. When his hands would fall, the Amalekites would then overtake the Israelites. And he was getting so tired. And finally, he had two guys come alongside him, his crew. Some guys on his squad, he said, lift up my arms. And so they gave him a seat, and now he's sitting up, but he's, they're lifting up his arms. And so jointly, they declare victory together. And ultimately, what happens is uh, the, the Israelites overrun the Amalekites, and they declare that victory once and for all. It's a posture of victory. It's a pa- posture of offense. It makes all the difference in the world. So you want to be in a position of strength before your enemy? Let's stop walking around defeated. Let's stop letting him feel like he's got the best of us. And instead, throw up those hands in worship. Throw up those hands in such a way that we believe and we have, just like we sang about earlier, all our hope is in Jesus, that we're going to continue to keep throwing up hands of victory. There's a song that we're going to sing here in just a minute as we close out. And it's become one of my favorite songs. And the story behind the song is super powerful. It's a song by Bethel Music, and it's called Raise a Hallelujah. And maybe you've heard this song. We've sung it here before, but the story behind the song is just is one of just a roller coaster. It really captures the heart of what we're talking about today well. And there was these worship leaders, these folks on the Bethel team that uh, their, their two kids uh, became ill all of a sudden. And they didn't know what was going on with them, but they were in this intensive care unit, and they were fighting for their lives just out of nowhere. And so Jonathan Helzer, who wrote this song uh, about his friends, the Taylors, uh, or or during this time, um, he was in communication back and forth with them. And there was one night that they sent this text to him, and it it basically just read, we don't think he's going to make it through the night. And so just overwhelmed in this moment, he confesses that as soon as I got that text, I just felt this giant of unbelief stood in front of me. I thought, Jackson's going to die tonight. We're not going to see a miracle. And as the Helsers, they dove into prayer over Jackson, he said that a new song came out of his heart. All of a sudden, out of my gut, this song came out in the face of the giant. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. And this song became their anthem, and they sung this song over him, and they prayed over him. And he saw the victory in that battle. And we know that we're not going to see a victory in every battle here and now, but we do know that ultimately there is a victory. And if we want to see more victories here and now, it starts with this posture of prayer. That's how we go from defense to offense. That's how we arm ourselves as we step out in prayer. We lift up arms in worship, and we declare victory and sing victory 
in the face of our enemy. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. I raise a hallelujah. My weapon is my melody. I raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated. Why? Because the king is alive. We're going to sing that here in just a second. And if you just feel compelled to, just even if right now you're in the middle of a defeat, pull yourself out of that and throw up some arms. I know some of you are like, I don't worship like that. I have like hands in the pocket, guy. That's cool. But maybe you just feel compelled today to throw up an arm. Or even if you can only get it like this high. Like that's, it's okay. Or maybe inside you just, inside you just throw up arms in victory. But what would that look like if we started to take on a new posture in the presence of the enemy? Declaring victory. So let's sing. I'm going to pray for us. And uh, we're going to close out today. Father God, we just want to thank you. We thank you, God, for that reminder that we come. We have a shared origin as citizens of your kingdom. Thank you for the awareness that we have this shared enemy and helping us make sense of some of the challenge that we face. And God, ultimately, I just want to thank you for claiming victory for us when we didn't deserve it. We just ask, God, that you will be the one that fights our battles for us, God, that you would show up in strength in our lives that we could continue to look to you, that we could continue to stand tall and throw up hands in victory in anticipation, God, of all that you want to do and will do in our lives. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.